0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the W.A.U. Most Awesome Founder Podcast, a show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. I'm your host, Ries Fahms, and today we welcome to the podcast, Sergio Chavez. Sergio is the global head of marketplace and partnerships at Sestrify, a startup that helps other companies in their software-as-a-service negotiations and automations. Sergio, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dries, for having me. Uh, What we always do as a starting point is actually to give the floor to our guests to tell something about their personal backgrounds, where they're coming from, how they ended up in Germany, how they ended up at the company where they are today. So I would say the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Uh, So, well, first and foremost,
1: I'm actually a a WHU alumni uh, from the full-time MBA 2015. I was actually just in campus last weekend, which was which was fantastic uh, to see how it's been growing. Um, but on the other side, uh, I'm actually originally from Mexico, but have been living in Germany already for almost ten years. Uh, the the story behind it is relatively straightforward. I met my wife back in Mexico, uh, who is from Würzburg in Germany, and actually she was okay. the one that that brought me here. Um, and in terms of my career, I actually started as a management consultant. Uh, but since, uh, 2011, I actually switched to tech, uh, most specifically in the B2B software space. And since then I've been holding different global roles at different players in the ecosystem. So if we, the way that I typically like to explain it is if you see the, the B2B software value chain, you have on mm-hmm. one end, you have the, the users. So all of us that use software in our companies. Um, and at the other extreme, you have the makers, no? all the, the the companies that actually produce all the B2B software products. No? Uh, then you have the the sellers in between who are the ones basically connecting both sides and then the supporters that are really everyone that is providing the underlying technology to make this ecosystem happen. So uh, in my personal experience, I've actually been in, in all of those uh, um, uh, spots, so to say. So I, of course, as a okay. user, uh, but also as a, uh, basically my first uh, project in the, in the SaaS world uh, or software world was actually working for a telecommunications company, building their cloud uh, business, their initial cloud marketplaces for small and medium businesses. Then I moved to the software provider who provided the, the underlying marketplace technology. So to the supporter bucket, and that was then acquired by one of the largest distributors of software and hardware worldwide. Um, so I moved into the seller space. And now sastrify which is a uh, i think a nice combination because it's actually a maker so it's a software vendor per se so we have our own mm-hmm. product but we also have our own marketplace so we are actually channel partners or sellers from other uh software products so um that's how i've been moving around since since back then
0: yeah and i would say actually your your final move now so when i read your linkedin i could see that you started working at Sesterfy in 2022. And as you mentioned, you did a full-time MBA at Weahoo before. You worked at some more, I think, more corporate companies before. So I would say jumping to a kind of novel startup is not always a kind of straightforward choice for people that have invested a lot in an MBA and have built a corporate career. So can you maybe explain a bit more what was kind of your motivation to make that jump to to join Sestrify? At, at the time when it was really kind of an, uh, a new company starting off?
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Just for your reference, actually, uh, uh, Sastrefy is my second uh, startup in which I joined. I actually joined okay. while I was in at, uh, at Ingram Micro, one of my, previ- at my previous uh, company. I, I actually jumped into another startup, but actually I soon came back to, to Ingram Micro because a, a great project with my previous manager opened up. Um, and okay. actually, that's why my my stay in that startup was relatively short. Um, but yeah, in regards to to Sastrify, I think it was a it was a really great combination of things that that came together. So first and foremost, uh, Sastrify was founded by two WHU alumni, uh, Sven Lakinga mm-hmm. and Max Messing. Uh, they're actually the second time founders, so they already know uh, how this space works. They actually had a successful exit with their previous uh, startup. And, and of course, that, that, that already has a, a significant impact for for, one of, for people like me coming from a corporate background, you know, like, okay, you, you're already joining a, a company that, that, is, that is basically founded by, by two people that know what they're doing. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was already one compelling event for me. Uh, the other compelling event was, uh, of course, the, the funding of the company since uh, due to, despite the fact that it's a young company, so it was founded in 2020, it has grown pretty mm-hmm. rapidly, and basically every year since then, there's been a, a funding round. So actually, um, before I joined, uh, I had closed its Series A, which of course the Series yeah. A is one of those big milestones in in the in the life of a startup. Uh, the first, uh, let's say, may one of the major first major milestones, a- and of course that 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 implies that okay, this this has some legs, and this is actually going going into a bigger into bigger scale. Um, and i would say the 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 lar- the third factor was actually the fact that it was really a in the intersection of, th- of many things that i've done in the past No, so uh, as i mentioned to you when i was explaining a little bit of the how the b2b software ecosystem works and the major players it's it's very interesting because I, in my in the past that i worked very much on the maker side like with the software vendors with the distributors um, but what i realized since then is that the The amount of sophistication from the vent from the some of the software vendors from the resellers, all the intermediaries, was incredible. No? Like there were statistics, there were processes, there was tooling, there was there was a lot of sophistication on that side. No? But when you look at the users, so the actual customers that are paying for the software. No? like mm-hmm. they, we, they were really pretty much living still in the stone age no? like managing their software on an excel file trying to keep track of yeah. things uh really with of course sellers coming all the different ways uh trying to buy their products no? uh, people buying the credit card so it was really the wild west no? <laughs> yeah. and and again the degree of sophistication was actually very very poor no? so the fact that sastrify from its beginning, actually deliberatively position itself from the side of the user or the customer, right? like, like really trying to enable that customer to sort of like level up the playing field right? because of previously being totally uneven right? and trying to, yeah. let's say, bring up the, the the software customers, the software users right? to a level where they really have control and visibility and, and have uh, statistics, have information to make better informed decisions um, that, that for me was like a like a like an incredible thing uh, when I when I first saw it, um, and again yeah. it's it was sort of like the, a great move for me to be able to help those companies that were struggling with that, no? which I saw in the past.
0: Okay, yeah. and because maybe also for our audience to explain a bit what what Sestify is is doing. And so imagine that I'm an, a small and medium sized company, and I have all these subscriptions on, on I don't know what on. <laughs> asana on teams uh, ChatGPT nowadays whatever um and indeed I, I think still nowadays a lot of these companies simply have an excel with their overview of subscriptions but of course there will be a lot of kind of services that are duplicated in different offerings you might have slack you might have teams um so what is the kind of the value proposition that you bring to these companies yeah as yeah great great question so the way that I personally like to explain it is
1: we we help actually other companies similar to us, like fast growing startups, scale ups uh, no. to basically solve their software chaos <laughs> so because as as you mentioned, like the type of customers that we work with are again fast growing companies similar to us that use hundred plus different software tools. And nobody really has control of what they have who's bought what um how much money they're giving away and uh, which are the key dates if they need those parts or not like like there again it's it's the wild west pretty much no? and and of course it, it it happened especially in the previous years but of course now with all these different macroeconomic environments it's, it's a little bit different i would say since 2022 and into 2023 but in the past like all of these companies were just going into a buying spree and basically buying everything yeah. that looks shiny promising cool and, and and of course everyone with a credit card was out some, some stuff <laughs> but of course then yeah. when the when the whole macroeconomic landscape changed for startups you know, like then they really need to look into okay what what do i really have you No. Know? um and, and especially because for a lot of these companies especially let's say digital native companies when you look into their PLs, pretty much it's people it's offices and it's then software, no? like the third mm. major bucket in their PL. So there's a significant amount yeah. of money that goes into that, but nobody really knows what's there. No? Um, yeah. So what Sastri basically does is uh, we 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 basically solve that in three ways. So on the one hand side, we have our own product, which basically acts as the single source of truth for the entire software stack of a customers. No? So all of those products that they have through different mechanisms, we basically put it in a single place, and they know clearly like, okay, who's who's owning what, um, how much money we're giving away, where the contract, okay. dates, and then they can manage the entire life cycle of all of each and every product from a we just found these cool products. Like it happens with a lot of our customers now with AI tools, like they're trying AI tool yeah. here, AI tool there. No, you, you know that <laughs> yeah. much better than anyone. I know. <laughs> and and then it's like okay that that so like triggers the entire life cycle no? from a this is compliant with our budget compliant with our security and now we bought it now there's a renewal like all of that life cycle collaboration analytics happens inside our product no? um okay but in addition to that we do two more things so we have our professional services arm so we have a team of um procurement ninjas that actually help our customers to, in the first place, to optimize their, their software stack, you know? like everything that is in our product. Uh, but most importantly, as they evolve, they, they're they the ones that are supporting them in negotiations, providing them advice, okay. uh, supporting them on how to evolve their software stack. And then the, the last thing that we have is our own marketplace. You know? So I'm actually responsible for that marketplace, where mm-hmm. we basically give the option to our customers to buy that software directly from us. And of course, we basically, on the other hand, we act as a two-sided marketplace where we have partnerships with the software vendors, uh, with distributors, with different partners, and so forth.
0: Okay. So, again, to go back to the example, when I'm a a German Mittelstand company, I can become a customer of you, and then I can kind of create a dashboard where I will see all my subscriptions with all the details, the, the, the legal issues, which kind of services... And then I can even kind of rely on you to help me to kind of buy the the software that I still need from your marketplace.
1: Correct. Correct. So actually what we do is when our customers join, so we do this whole onboarding process. They Again, through different mechanisms, we provide that single source of truth. And then our customer success team with our procurement specialists, with our marketplace team, basically all look into, okay, what do they have? How can these be optimized? What makes sense to go here, go there? No, um, so yeah. we proactively go with our customers um, and and support them on that, and that we do on a regular basis. No?
0: Okay, but because I think then it's quite interesting because you're you're also then uh, you're in your responsibility you're also responsible for managing these partnerships with these software providers, but it, it seems to be for me a, a quite challenging role because on the one hand you want to create a partnership with them and get good deals so that on your marketplace, you can kind of advertise good deals at the same time. You want to help the users to kind of, how do I have to say it to, to find out what do I really need and is really the off, do they not offer me too much? So on the one hand, you want to kind of help the user in kind of fighting (laughs) the software provider. (laughs) And at the same time they seem the same software provider is an important partner in your marketplace so so how how do you deal with that kind of tension yeah
1: that's a that's a fantastic question that's the, that's our, our our daily business um yeah. uh, look at the end of the day the way we we position ourselves and not only from a marketplace perspective but in general as as Sastrify, is we're we're basically a, the middleman trying to Bring the best of both sides. No? So we're not mm. we're not let's say in the business of going against the software vendors no? uh, and extracting every every single penny available. No? Uh, we're actually in yeah. the middle, like trying to basically bring both sides to the table uh, in the most let's say fast, efficient, and and I would say uh, from a price perspective, like find a a, a find a fair middle ground for both parties. No? Because again, going back into what I was mentioning before, when when we talk to to many of our customers, like again, the level of sophistication, the level of understanding of how the market works, uh, the fact that they just don't know what levers they have available to again get better deals, get better opportunities. Um, So we we support them on all of that. But on
0: the Mm -hmm. other hand, the
1: value that we generate for the for the software vendors is we tell them like, hey guys, we're generating new business opportunities for you uh, we're also helping you to identify growth opportunities with existing customers that you serve uh, we make it fast we bring you with the right stakeholders which is a great value for them right? because typically their their direct sales teams or are, are in many cases they're struggling just to find the right person to talk to right? and we have all of those yeah. executive relationships and through that we can expedite the process of course it doesn't come for free, of course. They, that that means they they need to give like special preferential conditions to our customers, no? um, yeah. and and uh, but again, it's this give and take. No? That that we're that yeah. we're always we're always in this balancing act, trying to act in the best interest for 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 both parties, but especially for the for our customers, who again at the end of the day are the are the software buyers, no? and and in my view, at the end of the day, they're the ones that are paying for the whole ecosystem to work. No? Uh, no. And, and it's a it's a it's a market that has been underserved, I think, for for many years until the emergence of these new software category in which we are.
0: And what do you mean with that? With this new software category? So
1: with Sastrify, So Sastrify yeah, okay.
0: is, is, is in these software procurement or SaaS procurement category, no? Which is yeah, yeah. So yeah. and As you are a kind of intermediary that is changing also a bit the power dynamics in this whole negotiation story, not because. Before, if if I don't have good insight in as a user in all these different offerings, it, it's very difficult to negotiate good deals. And now you, as an intermediary, you can you can actually help me to improve my bargaining power. Position. Correct. And and just to add to that, for when we when we look at our customers, uh, the the
1: the software purchasing decisions typically sit with different stakeholders. No? Like mm. our smaller companies it typically lies with the CEO, with the CFO, with the CTO. Um, our larger customers have a procurement team, probably one, two people, or even a larger organization. And of course, they have a greater degree of sophistication, but especially with, with, with smaller customers, like they, they just don't know. No? Like they, ha- they know from their own experience, but beyond that, like they're, they're out of touch with what's the latest and greatest in the market, how, how are the yep. dynamics working? And that's where we come in.
0: Yeah, And, and actually, well, that, when I talk about B2B with my students, I'm always telling them, look, one of the core challenges is that the person that is paying is often different from the person that is using. And that's especially in software, I would say, uh, the, the people that use Asana or that are using Slack might be different from the person that has to pay the invoice. Now, I suppose that also has implications for you guys as an intermediary in, in this ecosystem. How do you deal with that kind of topic? Yeah, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question. So what we what we have at Sastrify is
1: all of those different individuals. So the the, the customer that's it, who pays the bill, and the user, they're all inside Sastrify. Yeah? So we have we have this concept of tool owners. So basically, each tool you were mentioning Asana, Microsoft, Google, each of them typically has a, a tool owner. So there's a person mm-hmm. that is ultimately responsible for uh, the contract, for the invoicing, uh, to decide like, okay, there's a time of the renewal, should we continue, should we change? Uh, so those are typically the the tool owners. And then of course the, those tool owners have then users that they enable. And then on top of those tool, tool, tool owners, there's typically the CTO or the CFO, Somebody at a management level that has the oversight of of different how those different pieces uh, play with each other. So we actually have have connect, contact with with all of those different levers. No? Okay. Um, and at the end of the day, trying to enable them uh, in in different ways, no, whether through our own resources or through our different partners that we also bring to the mix. Um, but at mm. the end of the day, of course, at, as you as you mentioned, typically what we realize is especially when it comes to to new software buying decisions, like, I don't know, a customer has a CRM and their current CRM is no longer working uh, and they need a new one. So we're also advising those tool owners and the users in terms of what are some of the key needs that you you really require, um, trying to find who the best alternatives are and bringing different partners into the mix. So it's it's a, it, I would say it's a fascinating process because it, we we really have a I would say a a a deep relationship inside the the organizations that we work and and really yeah. it's it's with those organizations we we can provide the greatest value no? like the more the more we can interact with the organization the more uh, the more value we can bring no? and we see it a, we we see a lot of similarities with let's say other products like. Like spend management tools, no? like like traveling tools, no? where for basically like any employer of the company that wants to book a trip needs to do it through the app, mm-hmm. no? or any employee yeah. that wants to get a reimbursement for whatever trip needs to do it through the app.
0: No? So we these the systems are most of the time not that user friendly, in my experience. Yeah, exactly,
1: exactly, exactly. Uh, we, we're trying to we're trying our best to make those as user friendly <laughs> as possible. But the idea is like. If you want whatever type of software, like go to Sestrify. Yeah? that be your go-to place for, for any software related inquiry.
0: Yeah. Okay. Now you mentioned before that, that uh, Sastryfy has raised series A actually last year, uh, actually, uh, yeah, we are at the end of the year, they, they, raised significant series B and a series B extension. Uh, so there were, and there was even a debt financing, uh, announcement on Crunchbase. So Sestrify has actually raised quite some money. Now, typically, we learn our students' marketplaces are kind of asset-light <laughs> business models. So then the question is a bit, why do you need that kind of money? In what, in what kind of activities are you investing the money that is raised? Yeah, How is this helping Sestrify to grow? Yeah, great question. So, the of course, the primary focus is the, the development of our product.
1: No? So the marketplace, I think what's important is the marketplace is is one of the three pillars of a valid proposition but of course being a SaaS company ourselves um, our product is always the where most of the investment goes in expanding our engineering team um, and basically making our product more robust um, over and over so that's really where the biggest investment always goes Uh, but of course the other big bucket is in terms of international expansion so for us okay uh, for us um, of course being a a German company. The DACH market is, and in Europe overall is, is, is where we're the strongest. But U.S. We've been already active in the U.S. since already a couple of years, and of course we're we're right now with with that extra ca- injection of capital, uh, doubling down in the expansion of the uh, of our U.S. presence. Uh, also because okay. uh, when when you see the bigger landscape, we we're actually. Uh, there's other two major players in the space from the U.S. expanding into Europe. So right now we're okay. in the middle of that run. Uh, plus, of yeah. course, there's many there's many small players coming into the space. No? But what's interesting is now there's also consolidation starting to happen in this space. No? So we actually, we just announced yeah. earlier this month the our first acquisition. And of course, mm. the, you can start seeing how the market is going to start little by little to consolidate. So it's, yeah. it's basically... To answer your questions about, let's say, growing our product, growing our footprint, and of course, starting to to invest in these strategic initiatives such as M and A.
0: Yeah, so it's 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 becoming a game of you need simply you need to have the financial resources to support exponential growth, uh, to kind of have a war chest to to fight the competition that is out there. Not there. Yeah, okay. exactly. Yeah, now you uh, on almost on a daily basis? Uh, you're managing partnerships, both the, the the user side, but also with these software providers. Now, I'm always very fascinated by by people that are responsible for that kind of topic because I would say it's 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 quite different from what we traditionally see as managers. I'm, traditionally, managers are people that kind of are responsible for a team internally, and they have to make sure that they do what they need to do, that they coordinate. But when you are a partnership manager, you actually need to coordinate and align with people with whom you don't have a kind of hierarchical relationship because they work at another company. So I would say that, that this is much more challenging than being a manager of internal people. Now, based on your own experiences, what do you see as the most challenging part of of doing this kind of partnership management? Yeah. Great question. I'm, I'm thinking
1: there's many challenges, but I would say probably the main one is that there's, there's no playbook for partnerships Mm. today. Um, and, and let me, let me try to explain that. So when we talk about other business functions, sales, marketing operations, uh, there's typically, I think, a very robust um, uh, body of knowledge around those. Yeah, uh, there's-
0: yeah we learn at the MBA at BAU how to how to do sex. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and
1: and of course, there's uh, different uh, frameworks, tools, uh, you name it. No? Uh, professional associations, like the 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 degree of sophistication of those business functions, I think is is significantly. No? But when it comes to partnerships partnerships is one of those areas that I think it's still emerging um, there's uh, but but of course it's it's becoming more and more important especially in the tech in the tech space um, but but I think overall across industries um, but it's still a I would say an emerging again business function um, which yeah in the past has been spread across different business functions. No? Like it's, it, it was in the past done by sales, marketing did a little bit of it. Uh, operations did a little bit of that. Procurement did a little bit of that. Like everyone had some degree of saying into partnerships, but, but I think in the past there was not like a overall umbrella in, in which all partnership related activities were consolidated or concentrated. No? So I think the, the biggest challenge for, for those of us in partnerships and, 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 and actually uh, I was having a great conversation earlier today with with a with another partnership colleague of mine at a different company, um, because what we were saying is that actually this is my first formal partnership role where I have the partnership title, but I've been in partnerships okay. basically during the whole time that I've been in tech. No? Just it was just not known as partnerships. No? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, again, this is an emerging field, and and there's really. I would say, still up to today, not a definitive playbook on, on how to best run a partnership organization, how to best deal with partners. But I think fortunately, there's there's organizations. I'm actually active in many of them uh, that are emerging, try to actually build that that body of knowledge, uh, those playbooks, those methodologies, um, which are giving those of us in the in the partnership space sort of like the toolkit to 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 do our job. You know? Um, but it's mm. still in, in its infancy, I would say. But
0: as I mentioned... And, and do you maybe have, have a concrete example of, of, of a topic where you would eagerly want to have a playbook and where you have a feeling <laughs> that the playbook is missing? What, what kind of topic are you thinking about?
1: <laughs> oh, I can think of so many. Um, but just like like simply like like how do you... Like there, there's this, this. I was actually at a conference early this year uh, in the US about this topic uh, about partnerships, and one of the big things that we were all talking about is the importance of quality above quantity. That like how mm-hmm. important it is to have uh, a small set of great partners, um, mm-hmm. but of course that's not static. No? Like sometimes you need quantity, then you go into quality, and it's like an evolving thing. No? But like 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 how how do you know when to change or, or let's say when you, when you have multiple partners, how do you, how do you select the best ones? How do you manage them? And, and actually it was fantastic because that we were in a session, really going through an Excel file, looking at all the different criteria that they, that he and her, like everyone was using. <laughs> okay. and, and we were also like trying to put our heads together on it. Hey, what are the KPIs that you're using? What are the key things that you're doing? And try to just basically build a a, 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 a template that all of us in that in that community could reuse. Because at the end of the day, what I also realize is that everyone has been sort of like reinventing the wheel without the need of it, just because mm. the the lack of, let's say, watering holes or communities where partnership people just hang out. No? Like again, for sales, for marketing, there's many organizations, many communities, uh, but for partnership, there are just a few of them. No? So. Yeah. Uh, and these typically small local, no? but now there's there's some major communities at a global base that are emerging, and which allow us to that cross pollination, that collaboration, which is now finally happening. No?
0: Yeah. No, and I think the the challenge that you mentioned is a very interesting one because I can imagine that that it even triggers a lot of discussion within companies because. And for instance, when I talk nowadays with a lot of companies, they, they often talk about, oh, we need to build strategic partnerships with external partners to co-develop innovations and all that kind of stuff. And where they're actually saying, we want to go for quality. Yeah? So we want to have a limited number of partners with whom we can have in-depth collaboration to really understand each other and to jointly build stuff. But then I often, when in these companies, I start talking with the procurement people, they are often very kind of uh, wary of this kind of stuff because they're saying, yeah, but now our bargaining power is really affected because if we are becoming so dependent on a limited number of partners in our portfolio, these partners can easily abuse that in the next negotiation uh, for the marketplace in your case. So that seems to be even a kind of challenge where different people within your own organization can have very different opinions, I would say.
1: Yeah, and and look, I think there's also a, a mindset shift happening in terms of partnerships. Um, mm. I, also, earlier this year, so I was, I was at different partnership conferences, um, some with, let's say, more senior executives in the partnership world, some more younger executives in the partnership world, and you do see differences in terms of mindset in terms of how how they operate. No? Like I would say the despite the fact that there there hasn't been like a def- definitive playbook. No? Like you see the, let's say the, the, the senior executives much more focused into uh, controls and structure and mm. hierarchy hierarchy and these type of things. While you look into the 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 younger generations that are stepping into these roles, which are much more into experimentation, messiness, like iteration uh, without a lot of formalities, of course, that implies, as always, uh, challenges from a legal perspective, and what happens if things yeah. go south? You no, know, like very idealistic. You know? Um yeah. but, but I think that that shift is happening from 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 going from a very structured uh, top down approach you know, um, to a much more dynamic, uh, well, pretty much like in like in the startup world, you not know? like very iterative, yeah. uh, open collaboration, like those type of things. Uh, but that, but again, the thing is that there's, there's still not a playbook on how to do that right. Uh, And this is where I think all of those that are practitioners and that are basically on a daily, on a daily basis doing these are trying to sort of like get our things, our heads together in terms of how to work best. Like what are the templates? What are the tools? What are, like, how does the toolkit looks like for somebody? Because again, I think Mm -hmm. each of us has been sort of like reinventing the wheel without the need to do that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah no and yeah uh, but so you would say we, we need a kind of codification also of, of what is working what is not working so that we can learn from each other uh, and and build this playbook together out 100 100 percent okay good now at the same time I also noticed uh, in your LinkedIn that that you're actually also kind of trying to help others in getting a playbook, namely, I saw that you're actually, you have been, and I think still are quite active in helping international professionals to develop a career in Germany. Um, can you maybe tell a bit more about what you're actually doing there and why you are doing that? Yeah,
1: for sure. Um, so actually that's, let's say my my entrepreneurial part. Um Let's say most of the work that I've done has been for corporates, for startups, in an in an entrepreneurship role. Um, but that's, let's say, in terms of external entrepreneurship that I've been doing. And and really the primary, I, w- I would say the, the main trigger was really my move to Germany. The, the mm-hmm. fact that I came to Germany, I had no connections to Germany. Um, I basically started from scratch. Uh,
0: so so, tell me the first thing that that shocked you <laughs> when you started working in Germany. <laughs> oh God, like
1: there there's so much things, but I think um, like I I I just realized like how relevant it was to speak up um, in, in which is something that let's say I would, despite the fact that I was in a in a consulting world before in Mexico quite competitive, but but I never really. Taking, let's say, that assertiveness, uh, and and what I realize is that here in Germany, you 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 are not only um, um, allowed to, but actually encouraged to speak up when things go south and those type of things. And I think in my first professional experience here in Germany, I I, I had a, some challenge because I didn't speak up in in certain way when it had to be. No? And of course, that was a big hit and big learning. But uh, but I think that's what so like helped me and, and also motivated me to support other professionals and, and so forth. Um, yeah. but yeah, like my major motivation was, uh, coming over to Germany. Actually, uh, I, I'm not the first one, let's say in my family who's gone abroad. My, my sister actually lives in the U S uh, she's been there for over 20 years now. Um, so in the family, there's that, uh, there, there's that, uh, okay. uh, somehow we've ended up in different locations and, uh, And and actually what I try to do since I, since I got here is to stay connected with the Mexican community, uh, in Mm -hmm. in Germany, uh, participate in different professional associations, um, but actually got more and more engaged, um, in the community. And there was a compelling event in the middle. So there was a Mexican Germany dual year, um, an initiative between both governments. And together with other Mexicans, we actually published a book like a like a catalog of Mexicans working in Germany. You know? Just just to okay. know who who's doing what, you not know? like who are we. You know? uh, there's yeah. 17,000 Mexicans in Germany, and we were like, okay, so who's okay. doing what? You know? um, yeah. And that led us to actually uh, deciding to start a business, uh, started basically uh, working in different offerings from workshops, career counseling, uh, a platform of networking. So trying to support. Mexicans uh, in their professional journey, um, but what we also realize is that the needs of the scientists, the needs of business people, the needs of technology people, the needs of those that are just starting, the needs from those that are that have been ten years here, are entirely different. So that's the reason why, at the end of the day, we we ended up uh, shutting down that that business, that uh, that initiative. But of course, I'm still active. I'm still, um, for example, there's a there's a community called Megapreneurs, no. Where I'm actually a mentor for people that wants to enter into tech. Um, I'm, I'm active at an organization called Two Hearts, which uh, here in Germany mm. has become quite quite prominent. Um, yeah. so basically with those of us that have these, these two hearts, no? like, who either come from abroad or were born here but with different migration background. No? Uh, but at the end of the day, the, the point of connection is also that tech, tech specific, no. So I'm I'm active in all those different communities, now supporting in, in different roles. But at the end of the day, it's about like trying to make it easier for
0: others that are basically pursuing a similar path as myself. Uh in terms of but maybe let, let us take a specific use case. Because you mentioned you have done the, the full-time MBA at Weao. Now, in this full-time MBA program, we we typically have quite some uh non-German. People that actually do the F, the, the full time MBA at Bayahu to actually increase their likelihood to build an, uh, a good career in Germany. Yeah, so they see that, I think, rightfully as a kind of entry ticket to the German labor market. So, so if we think about this group of people to which you actually also belonged some years ago, what are their core struggles? To realize that ambition yeah. well, ne- next to the <laughs> next to the weather <laughs> we cannot change that <laughs> but apart from that what, what would you see as the core struggles yeah
1: yeah that, that's a, that's a great and, and actually i had the privilege to also be be a coach for the MBA students so that's the reason why i was actually okay. in 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 the sort of campus last weekend um but look at what i what i what i realized is that i think there's many misconceptions for those that that that, that come here no? in terms of what is needed in terms of the path to take and so forth um, like it was something that is a no-brainer that I that I think is, is, it's incredible that it's still even up to today not so prominent but it's just like for example language skills no? like yeah. if you're if you're going into a customer facing role or into a partner facing like an external facing role you need German period. Mm. And, like if you're gonna be dealing with customers from Germany or the Dach region, partners from Germany, the Dach region, you do need the language full stop. Yeah? And, like no matter what how great credentials you have, but you you do need that skill set. Yeah? Uh the other thing is again, I think a a lot a lot of people come with a a especially I would say MBA students in general, these are all High-performing individuals, ambitious individuals that already have some uh, traction in their careers from whatever they come from, Um, and they like even if they have some big logos in their CV, like they believe they believe that okay, now with an MBA on top, and it doesn't need to be from WHU for whatever it is, like Mm. doors are going to automatically open for them, which. Mm. In my view, I think that's also a big misconception. No? So it's not that just because they have those big logos in their CV, like opportunities are just gonna open up for them. They still need to do the legwork of networking, connecting, mm. uh, building their brand. No? And, and that's something that just takes time, no? but it takes a deliberate effort um, it, to do that. No? And it's just not that because I have a great brand from the past and I have now a great business called Diploma, like just employers are mm. gonna come to me um so they they need to put the work uh on 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 doing that no? and that's actually that was actually my motivation back then of doing the mba of basically building my network which i was building from scratch by back then no? yeah um so yeah those are a couple of examples that come top of mind
0: yeah okay and and actually if we look at the other way because um at the, the german economy is struggling to some extent we know that germany uh, to kind of uh survive will will need a lot of external uh, people for the labor market um so so based on your experience what would you recommend to german employers if they want to become an attractive employer for high potential managers coming from outside yeah yeah so i'm, I'm thinking uh
1: I think a great example is what we're doing at Sastrify. So at Sastrify, mm-hmm. um, it's not a corporate; it's a startup. No? But but still, I think some of the practices that we're implementing, I think, are are are, are very valuable. No? Um, so, for example, there there are certain things that we're that we're doing in terms of uh, providing a learning budget. No? Like you can basically you you get as an employee a fixed learning budget that you can then spend in getting your german skills up to speed uh getting your mm. technical skills up to speed no? uh, we're also offering a 100 remote setup no? which i think especially those of us like myself that have a family no? appreciate a lot no? um, i think mm. the, the days of going to an office uh monday through friday um are long gone. No? I think there's some mm-hmm. industries where it's still required. Like, of course, if you need to do some physical job there with machinery whatsoever, you, you cannot do it virtually. But I think many of the jobs nowadays can be done pretty much fully virtually. Um, and having that flexibility, I think it's also a big a, a big uh, uh, value. No? Um, the the fact of also um, yeah providing that opportunity to grow, because what I have also realized in my, in the previous jobs that I had in Germany, like things t- tend to be like relatively stiff in terms of, okay, you're, uh, and then in a specific department and specific role and sort of like you're there and, and the opportunities to go and do other things in other departments are relatively limited. Right? And, yeah. and we encourage a lot in, in Sastrify that cross collaboration between departments like even beyond your current role, like. As long as you perform in your current world, you're also encouraged to go and try some other things, contribute here and there. Um, and that's still, I would say, not the norm in, in many German organizations no? where there's a lot mm. of, okay, you're, like, you, like, you, you're expected to come perform, say whatever your boss says, no? and, and there's still a very hierarchical, um, hierarchical mm. organization. So I think that flexibility, especially for newer generations, which are in my view, those that really have, I would say, the the hunger to come and pretty much build and start from scratch, uh, which of course is a is a is a big risk, is a big leap, is a big leap of faith. Um, I think those are the things that make an employer attractive to these type of international, high performing, ambitious talent overall.
0: Yeah, and and so even at a company like Sestrify, would you think would you still say that that German excellent knowledge of German language is a necessary condition or it is. Again, if you're dealing with local customers, local partners, yeah. um,
1: of course, if you're dealing with, I don't know, U S customers, European customers outside of yeah. back region, of course, it's not mandatory. Actually, we are encouraging our, our general language is English, but at the end of the day, depending on the market that you're serving language still plays a significant role. Like even we see it, mm with the type of customers that we serve, that which are, again, in their 30s, 40s, they all know English. But the fact of you being able to speak in German to them, it just creates a different level of trust, a different level of, of confidence. Um, so it helps. No? So it's probably not, in some cases, it's not mandatory, not because the people doesn't know English or so, but it just creates a different level of engagement, of, of, yep. of, of collaboration. So that's why I would say still for 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 external facing roles it it is in my personal view still mandatory uh, let me probably rephrase it's it's probably not mandatory but it's certainly a key differentiator um which which basically opens up the pie of opportunities significantly no
0: no, no but i actually would agree because i i also experienced that myself in my own function now I can speak German, not perfect, and especially in the initial years when I was in Germany, I felt rather uncertain to talk in German. And then you notice that it 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 is it even if the the people the colleagues with you talk can speak English, it creates a kind of boundary that that is not there if you speak German, even if it's not perfect. That's okay, but just being able to have conversations in German, especially in a more informal setting. Really makes a difference. I think we should indeed not underestimate. One hundred percent, one hundred percent.
1: And and look, like I, I I don't claim that my German is perfect. Far from that, mm. <laughs> actually, my <laughs> wife, was a, who's an elementary school teacher, always complains about my grammar uh, mistakes. But I, but I made yeah. myself understood. I, I'm able to to write to speak, and that's enough. I think as, young, as long as yeah. you make your your message across, then, and it's a painful process, but 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 it really pays off. No? And that's the reason why I think that's also, and that's back to your question about some of the misconceptions that not only MBA students, but I think a lot of international students have is many say like, oh, I'm going to go to Germany three, five years, and then I'm going to go back to my home country or do something else. In my view, like that's BS. No? Like either you go yeah. all in because yeah. it really takes time to, learn the language, build a network, either you go all in and look at the, like a long-term investment. So you're really moving and integrating into the, into the German labor market, or you, Mm. or you probably better look at somewhere else. And so, and
0: again, that's my personal experience and what I've seen with the people that I think have- No, I, I agree with you. I have the same experience. So I, I'm originally from Belgium. Then I spent 10 years in the Netherlands as a professor building up my network having contacts with journalists to uh, to publish in, in prominent uh, magazines. And then when I moved in Germany, I quickly noticed that you really have to start from scratch again. Yeah. So although it's like hundred kilometers from where I lived, <laughs> but <laughs> the fact that you're in a new country and a new language, the, the network that you have built in the Netherlands, the added value of that network in Germany is actually extremely limited. And you have to build your whole network from scratch again, which is extremely time-consuming and you should not underestimate the time and effort it takes to build a network. Yeah. And, and I agree with you that that's often underestimated, I would say.
1: hundred percent. And that's why I also think that, let's say for me, the WHO was a fantastic shortcut to accelerate that process. Mm. Uh, starting over, start, starting with the MBA, it was a great accelerator to build that network, like you don't start from scratch. Uh, so that's that's fantastic. But yeah, I think it, I yeah. think looking at it as a as a long term view, like okay, I'm moving to Germany, and I'm really here for the long run. That's when you have, I think, mm-hmm. the biggest chances of success.
0: No, 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 I agree. Sergio. Thanks a lot for sharing all these insights. It's nice to have a talk as two foreigners. And we actually, we actually have kind of, we had similar motivations to come to Germany. I also have a, a German wife that kind of pushed go. me to Germany. So maybe the government should think about how they can, can kind of leverage that kind of dynamics. Or maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we are, in that way, we have similar backgrounds, I would say. Now we we always end the podcast uh, with just asking you for some suggestions about books that you would try to recommend or podcasts. Do you have any suggestions for us? Uh, well, many um,
1: in in terms of in terms of like i I, I love reading a lot of different business books um, and and I actually don't read just one, but try to read multiple at the same time. It's not that I read okay. them from beginning to end, but I actually try to just open them up and and pick a few um um golden nuggets uh, inside those and those that I can think of um so you you probably know this from venture deals from um Brad Feltz. Uh, that's that's a that's a book that for me right now it's it's top of mind because I'm uh, of course trying to understand much better how the venture capital wor- world works ne? Which of course mm-hmm. now for us at Sastrify has become a, a, a more a, a predominant topic. So yeah. venture deals, I think it's a great book to to better understand how that world works. Um, and there's actually from the same author from Brad Feld. I'm actually reading a, a couple of other books, uh, startup communities and the startup community way, um, which has much more to do with just how to create these communities of startups. Um very much from a from a city perspective, no? because I'm also here active in the startup ecosystem in my in my in my city where I live, trying to basically build here yep. the network. Um, and and it shows like how basically they did it in in Boulder, Colorado, in the u s, and sort of yep. like what are some of the principles uh, that led to tech stars and all these great accelerators? Um, so mm-hmm. those are some of the books that I'm reading right now. So I'm very much right now, very deep into startup related <laughs> literature uh, to also yeah. try to help me uh, perform better my current, uh, at, at my current role at Sastrify. Okay, great. And any podcasts you're listening to next
0: to this one, of course?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the, of the All In podcast. Uh, okay. So that's something that I, that I, that I typically never miss uh, every week. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm listening at podcasts from Scott Galloway. So um, I would say, unfortunately, well, unfortunately it's, it's mostly U S podcasts that I'm listening mm-hmm. to. Um, I I've, there's of course some, some great podcasts in, in Germany that I followed like Startup Insider daily. I pretty much uh, listen at it on a regular basis because of our significant, uh, customer base in Germany and the Dach region. Yeah. So I, that, that's a great way of just keeping up to date with what's happening um but yeah uh, uh, again it's mostly startup related podcast that okay. i'm right now hearing just because it's just so dynamic and 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 the and i think right now it's it's probably the best medium to catch up with the latest and greatest that is happening
0: yeah then and, and we we often hear on the podcast all in and of course it's a very popular podcast now i would actually personally say that it's increasingly becoming a political podcast and less of yeah. a, a startup podcast so that At least from my perspective, that's a bit uh, a shame because I don't know if I want to hear the (laughs) political recommendations of these American uh, VC people, whereas I'm very interested in their ideas about kind of how tech is moving, how investment is moving, but... At least, unfortunately, I would say in the past months it has become very political. Which, yeah, 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 definitely. For me, it's at least as interesting. Let's say, like.
1: definitely. Yeah, I think right now what I've realized in the previous episodes, it's like fifty percent talking about uh, politics, international. But then the 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 golden nuggets that they throw regarding startups, VCs, like I think those are super. Those go- those golden nuggets is what I still uh, keep with it because I think <laughs> I think it, they they have some fantastic thinking, which to be honest, I would love that there would be more like these in europe no like much more uh, of these type of conversations no? where we can also learn more about how the european startup ecosystem is working but uh but yeah those are some top of mind
0: no and there i agree with you and and so i also like it that they are willing to be to have uncomfortable discussions amongst each other which i think you don't have a lot of podcasts that can do that in a nice way. And that I think they, they are able to do. Um, so in that way, yeah, I, I'm also still listening, you know, it's, it's not <laughs> that I gave up or something, but sometimes it feels a bit like, oh, I need to <laughs> kind of process through <laughs> stuff that is <yeah, laughs> not really that exciting. But um, yeah, I, I, I would say I would agree with your perspective on it. Okay. So Sergio, thanks again for taking the time to talk with us. I hope our audience also enjoyed this episode, and please don't forget to rate us if you like our podcast. And hopefully, you will listen us again in the next episodes. Bye. Thank you.